The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Last week in the episode, we talked about the fact that in June, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of a great moment in the history of aviation and aeronautics, which was my first flight. Uh, now we have coming up in July, uh, the 40th anniversary of a great moment in the history of aviation and aeronautics. It's Jeb's first flight. No, no, no. It's <laughs> no, it's the uh, Apollo 11 mission. The Apollo the 11. First, first uh, man on the moon. That'd be 40 years ago. 40 years ago. That's right. 40 years ago. Yeah. 40 years ago. yeah so, uh, I remember it like it was 40 years ago. I remember it like it was black and white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was all black and white. Not, yeah. I mean, I've, not that I remember personally. No, we you know. actually had color TV, but the signal from the moon was still black and That's white. That's right. Yeah. And not that I remember personally, because I, I was just a gleam in my parents' eye. Oh, you know. man. I, I I, I remember coming. I remember sitting in front of the tube for the landing. Yeah. And then there was this, you know, quarantine period where they were going to rest, secure, get everything ready before they did their first moonwalk. And was at a, a all day swim party not too far from where I lived, and uh, ducked out of that when word came down that they were like an hour away from opening the door and. I, I don't think there was anybody on the street yeah. anywhere for about <clears throat> five hours that night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it was, and you think, you look, and you can you can get video of that. You can probably find it on YouTube, um, and you just or the stills or whatever, and you look at that, and, and just the, the, the quality of the broadcast, even the quality of the, of the network broadcast of Walter Cronkite, yeah. Compared to the quality of the broadcast today is is stark, but um, just just the whole history um, uh, making nature of the thing. I, I probably mentioned on the podcast before that, uh, of course, that was July '69. In December of '68, uh, I had the privilege of watching Apollo Eight blast off uh, from from Cape Kennedy. It was Cape Kennedy then? It's Cape Canaveral again now. Um, I was, you know, five miles away or something like that, but saw it go up live. And, um, that was the, the first flight that went to the moon. They went around the moon yep. and, um, uh, that's the one in which they read, uh, you know, from, um, uh, from the book of Genesis and, uh, um, um, Frank Borman and all that kind of thing. So that, that kind of resonated with me on one level, but, Obviously, the the Apollo Eleven mission, uh, whole different, uh, whole different level. Do you remember at the end, you, uh, Dave? You you mentioned the splashdown, um, and do you remember how at the end they were all afraid that the first guys who were on the moon were going to bring back like moon germs? They, right? they were quarantined. They, so they were quarantined. They went went they went through a plastic tunnel. They brought the, they had to stay in the uh, in the in the uh, the command module. They had a converted. Yeah. Uh, they had to stay in the command module. They brought them to the deck, hooked up this uh, uh, this you know, the, the the plastic tunnel. 
and they walk through that to a customized Airstream trailer. That's right. And and one of the famous uh, uh, media ops, photo ops, was them being interviewed. They were looking through the glass window of that of that converted Airstream. And the picture I remember is of Nixon, who was president at the time, had had made the pilgrimage out and was was in front of the window talking to them. Mm-hmm. Now, so so just kind of picture that scene, all right? Nixon standing there on the deck, you know, on the below decks of uh, of uh, it was the USS Hornet. I stood on that spot as well. The USS the USS Hornet is now a uh, a museum. It's a, a, a historic landmark, and it's a museum, and it's moored in at uh, Alameda, what used to be the Al- Alameda Naval Station. And uh, sorry, my phone is ringing here. Um, and you get to go on board and tour the uh, the aircraft carrier. And uh, if I take a drink, they don't have the uh, airstream there now. That but they've sort of got a, they've got a, a display and they've kind of taped off the decks where they said this is where it was, this is where it was, and they show the pictures and whatnot. And uh, kind of a cool little moment. And uh, where's the airstream? Beats the heck out of me. That's a good question. Because that's that's an icon. That's a subject to some. Yeah, it uh, really is. Uh, well, we know where part of the uh, part of the crew capsule. Yeah. Interesting bit of trivia, which is actually not that hard to figure out. How many American flags are there uh, on the uh, surface of the moon? Let's see. Four. 16, 16, 17, six. Six is correct. Oh, okay. The question, of course, is whether... Seven if, there'd be seven, but Apollo 13, but 13 didn't to stop. 13 didn't make it. That's right. And uh, so, uh, anyways, yeah, 40th anniversary. Very, very cool thing to remember and uh sad that we kind of did it six times and and then stopped but uh well they say we're going back that would be a good thing i think it would be uh yeah uh, well we're going back um eventually a b we're going back with you know different uh hardware different spacecraft but we're really kind of sort of reverting back to the same basic design that we used for Mercury, Apollo, and Gemini, which is a multi-stage uh, a rocket with a capsule uh, on top of it. Yeah. Uh, none, none of which, well, the one or two of the stages might be reusable, uh, but nothing else really is. But it, this is, it, because it turns out that this is a much more economical way to do it. That, well, I mean, maybe not to get to, maybe it's the only real way to get to the moon, but in terms of getting to orbit, hasn't it turned out that the space shuttle's been kind of a, a boondoggle and, and uh, th- wildly think, expensive for so what you too, get? But and, the, the, I think it has also, Jack. Um, but I guess my point would be that research, or, or research and, and tech like um, um, Spaceship One, uh, that kind of thing hasn't really been embraced by NASA, um, where you know, there's a reusable spacecraft, there's um, something new and, and innovative. Yeah, well, there is something that um, you know the, the object, the real object here is getting to orbit, and then using the space station or some other to be determined platform. As uh, or you know, build a ship in space. Uh, you don't have to have you know a streamlined uh, uh, craft when you're in space. Right. And we're we're putting together these capsules. The primary uh, one of the, one of the primary design parameters of which is for reentry. It it, it doesn't really um, 
make sense anymore to do it that way. And we could probably devote an entire podcast to to uh, NASA, um, and um, uh, probably sh- maybe ought to think about it at some point. But I don't know. I, I don't want to get off on that kind well, of thing. Yeah. Okay. Remember, in terms of the the uh, the shuttle itself mm-hmm. and the expense, uh, you know, it it costs you know many 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 thousands of dollars to lift one pound of cargo into orbit whether that's a human body, uh, whether that's a human body with food and water for a trip to the moon, uh, whether that's human bodies and food and water for six months on the, on the International Space Station. Because mm-hmm. remember, that International Space Station is up there because of the shuttle. Yeah. How, you know, it hauled all that stuff up there piece by piece by piece. Uh, well, it, it, you're you know, absolutely right. It's kind right. of a one-way delivery truck. You're, you're absolutely right that the shuttle hauled up the pieces of that. But um, that's not to say that it couldn't have been done in some other fashion. That's true. Uh, I'm sure it could have been done in some other fashion. Uh, the uh, I believe there's kind of a pretty steep curve, though, as you go up and wait in terms of the fuel that it takes to get it up there. And somewhere in here, they had to find a happy medium between the size of the components that they needed to put up there and the uh, ability to fly a vehicle large enough to to do that and still be you know somewhat reusable mm-hmm. and some of that stuff could have probably gone up as uh, shrouded as just cargo with nothing but a you know a, a driver's seat capsule up in the front of it yeah but uh well you, you don't even need the you number know, of people it takes to do that stuff you don't really even need um a manned uh, craft to uh, no, that's uh, true. place that's hardware true. in orbit. The Russians have demonstrated that time and time again with their automated Soyuz capsules. They're provisioning the space station with automated spacecraft. The, yeah, launch, I mean, they dock with the space station. They're unloaded. Trash is put in. Whatever else is put in, and it's it's it undocks and it reenters. It's without any without any human oh, yeah. on board. Yeah, it just I, takes I a human. I, I, yeah, it takes a human to put the stuff take the stuff off and put it back on right. again. Right. Yeah. Anyways, we want to uh, kind of send our congratulations or our memories or our, 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 our uh, yeah. fond memories to. Uh, I still remember my date that weekend. <laughs> To Neil Armstrong, and uh, she does too, and Buzz Aldrin, who uh, were the first humans to uh, to land on the surface of the moon, and to their uh, command module pilot Michael Collins, who uh, yeah. who waited in orbit for them. And so uh, forty years also, ago, aren't they all still alive too? I believe all three of them are still alive. That is another good trivia question, though. Of the twelve uh, guys who walked on the surface of the moon, how many are still are still living? And uh, well, I know, um, was it Cernan? No, I've lost track. Gene's still alive. Is he? Yeah. 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 Gene's still um, alive. I saw him not long ago. Uh, oh, <laughs> just happened to drop that into the conversation, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Just <laughs> my bud, um, my bud, Gene Cernan. We were out drinking. Armstrong is still alive. Collins is still alive. Well, I'm, yeah. Okay. And I mean, Aldrin. I'm still alive. I'm pretty sure so, he's still yeah. alive, yeah. So, anyways. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go. 40 years ago. Not that I remember 40 years ago, but uh, you guys, I know you do. Dates as well. 
Yeah, well, if you if, if you if you're interested in this, and chances are you've got a a, a video playing device somewhere. Uh, I think it was HBO did an extraordinary multi-part series yeah. mm-hmm. uh, called From the Earth to the Moon. I couldn't agree that, more. Uh, awesome series. Talks about the, the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo programs up to and including the the uh, the, the lunar uh, man missions on the moon and, and uh, Apollo 17's final mission to the moon and uh, for mankind so far. Uh, really good stuff, and you know, and there's not much that beats the storytelling and, and suspense of a story that we already knew the outcome of uh, in uh, Apollo 13 that, that Ron Howard did several years ago. Yeah, yeah, and it won't surprise you to learn that I have that DVD. <laughs> Welcome, folks, to episode 141 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, spacing out tonight, Wednesday evening, June 24th, 2009. And let me say hi to the folks here on the virtual hangar. One of those voices out there, I don't know who that was, but one of those voices out there is Dave Higdon, who's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. Hello, everybody. Okay, David. How are you doing this evening? Right. It's just getting a little too... I'm away from him. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, David. How are you doing? What's going on? Oh, doing great. Melting in the early summer sun. Oh, man. It's just... Well, I'll tell you about the weather when you get... So you've had normal normal summer weather down there, right? Well, for the last three days. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah again, we, we, we've got it on track here. All right. I mean, we don't get real summer until after the 21st. Okay, so then it flips a switch. Then well, that was like a couple of days ago. So, uh, right, like three days ago, yeah. like Saturday, mm-hmm. when all the all the neighborhood druids went to this big space eyeball to watch the uh, uh, the uh, longest day of the year happen. There's a ruby jewel in the top of this big obelisk. Are you serious? Yeah, that's cool. I want to see it. And it shines down on another jewel in the ground, and they align perfectly. And a laser goes off, and a magic door opens, and you find the lost ark of the covenant. Well, actually, you know, uh, Jimmy Hoffa and uh, Elvis Presley were standing right there. That's another story. <laughs> and also here in the hangar this evening is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from and, us and, and Amelia Earhart, Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? Do I have to put up with? This? I, I guess we have no choice. Uh, I guess not. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So. Uh, Summer turns summer. That's always summer down where you are. I don't know. Well, it's, yeah, it's it's been pretty brutal um, last week or so leading up to uh, I don't know last couple of days. It was just we had like a heat index of 105. Uh, yeah, I was talking to our friend uh, uh, Dave Shellbetter this afternoon. He was telling me it's been pretty pretty nasty uh, heat index heat index wise, uh-huh. uh, but interspersed with like downpours or something like that. So you kind of can't. You can't well, really. We uh, haven't you, had that much rain. Uh, probably where where um, uh, better is, there's a little bit more rain. Uh, but here we haven't had a whole lot. Maybe every third day or something like that. We got a significant little storm last night about ten thirty, eleven o'clock. Um, but well, uh, in Florida, you know. it gets into these cycles with these afternoon yeah. air mass thunderstorms mm-hmm. that really aren't related to anything. That's Except right. the micrometeorology. Yeah, but it sounded from Dave like it sounded from Shelbetter like this was not the case that this was more yeah. of a systemic things that were happening. No, the one last night was was just a very big system and it was moving very very slowly. A lot of lightning uh, and a lot of rain came out of it. That's not the norm. The norm is 
Um, you wake up in the morning. It's relatively cool, kind of humid. Um, the day starts to heat up, and by noon, it's you know 90-ish. By th- by three o'clock, uh, all the little white puffies that have been forming uh, are now you know big white puffies, and they start roaming around and dumping rain. But they they will rain on like a city block, or the the, the white puffy is really about a city block in diameter. And they just kind of move around and dump rain here and there. And you can be on literally one side of the street and be dry, and the other side of the street will be raining. And, and then this uh, amazing thing happens. Those little cells he's talking about, they stop. Uh-huh. And you can watch the moisture return to the cloud. <laughs> That's right. It just okay. comes off the hot, uh, the hot ground and mm-hmm. evaporates back into this mist that will mm-hmm. rise off the streets and parking lots. And Micrometeorology like, is a good way to say it, a good way to describe it. Oh, yeah, it's like its own little engine running right there. And I am Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you. I'm back from Sin City, and uh, I'm talking to you from the home office in Dover, New Hampshire. So uh, where it's actually turned nice now. It's been nasty all day. I, I, this is the first VMC weather I've seen since I've been back, which is now about four or five days. And... Uh, and apparently it was bad the whole time I was in. I was enjoying the beautiful, hot, dry, clear weather in Las Vegas. It was nasty here too. So, uh, I read some, coming up with a way to rub it in. I heard a stat. I heard a stat the other day, and I don't know if this is official, but someone said to me that it, so far in June, our area up here has received five times the normal June rainfall. Uh, well, I was talking to Lee and, and uh, talk talk to him regularly, obviously. But, you know, the last couple of phone calls, you know, hey, what's going on? How's it going? And he'll say, well, you wouldn't believe it, but it's raining again. And this is in D.C. According to him, I'm sure he's exaggerating a little bit, but it's been like five or six days since April where it hasn't rained uh, in in the D.C. area. Uh, And that's... My bride just um, got back from D.C. Way way out of whack. And, and she was talking about it being a little more uh, uh, precipitous than usual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we better move off the weather. That's enough weather. That's more than enough weather talk. Um, more but, than enough. But, uh, yeah, One so thing it's... about it, when we stop talking about it, it will change. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so I know you guys aren't able to keep up with all the aviation podcasts there are in the world, but I just want to call attention to the fact that uh, a new episode of one of our favorites has just come out. Um, Will Hawkins and Dave Allen have just uh, issued, uh, I believe it's episode number 46, and uh, they got a really, really cool guy to be their guest on this this episode number 46. Me! Oh! <laughs> uh, I don't know why. I kind of was. They asked me. They've been asking me off and on for a while now, and I, for some reason, I did. I was wasn't going to do it. And then we were talking when we were down in Sun and Fun, and I said, you know, yeah, this would be fun. Let's do it. So we finally got together a couple weeks back, and uh, we got on Skype and just talked for a while. And uh, they, uh, uh, David, uh, didn't do much to it. He left most everything we talked about in there. But uh, it was it was a fun conversation, and uh, I, uh, I, you know, invite people to to listen in. Uh, you might. If you care, you might learn some things about me you didn't know. Um, oh, really? But, uh, but you know, I, I confess, I confess that although I gave them, I wouldn't call it the exclusive. What's it called? But, but I gave them the first shot at a, a, a few new stories. 
Uh-huh. And then like a week later, we record an episode of this podcast and I told the stories over again. So uh-huh. so there are some stories that you'll hear on both. If you listen to this podcast for the last three or four weeks, you'll hear them again, um, maybe with a slightly different perspective uh, in episode 46 of the Pilot's Flight Podlog. So I want to thank those guys for having me on. It was really fun and uh, it was uh, it was just a pleasure and a, and a privilege to be part of that podcast, which is one of the best aviation podcasts out there in my view, especially now. Anyways. Um, so uh, now we were trying to remember though. Uh, so Dave, you've done Will Hawkins podcast, right? Yes. A couple and, of years ago. And and I thought that, that Jeb, you had too, but I did. You, and and you, you, I, I, I'm going to get shot and justifiably, um, you did Steve or, Tupper. Or, okay. It was, it was Steve. Okay. I think that's now, what I, I, now will, um, uh, and Rico inter- interviewed me for their film. For their movie, right, yeah. So uh, so, so you, maybe, you know, I'll take an hour, inter- you know, or so video interview and raise, you know, see your, your podcast appearance. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I'll, well. I'll, see your, I'll see your podcast appearance and raise you. A bit. Are we going to talk about you in video? I wasn't going to bring this up, but I guess. No, I don't, don't necessarily want to. Uh, okay. What do you want to do? Whatever. I, I, it's uh, it's uh, we put it on the front. This is not on our list, but I'll talk about it anyways. Uh, I will definitely call uh, people's attentions to to uh, when I said I wasn't going to talk about it. I said I wasn't going to give you a hard. I meant I wasn't going to give you a hard time about it. I'm certainly happy to point out the fact that uh, another hard time about it too. Huh? Another one. I will. Don't worry. We're getting there. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 another one of the uh, the terrific, uh, fascinating, interesting, valuable, uh, informative, uh, educational AvWeb uh, videos has come out, and this one is the one that you've been alluding to over a couple episodes now where you tested a bunch of aircraft tie-down uh, devices and uh, and it's kind of fun it's interesting it's uh, it, it, and the results are, were the results different than what you expected yeah yeah um, uh, so so the, the you know the well, kind of the kind of rephrase that they, they were on on one level they weren't on another level um, the, the level on which they weren't um, unexpected was that the success of any um, portable tie-down anchor is very dependent on the soil. Yeah, that yeah. was that was kind of. I mean, it's kind of duh, but yeah. never really thought of that. You know, we did not expect, and 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 in our in our little test, and and Dave, I have to to say right up front, um, was present. Uh, we we basically taped that video in two different segments, two different days, about five weeks apart. Dave happened to be here um, right after Sun and Fun for the first part uh, and was, for lack of a better term, a production assistant. He was, you know, helping with the equipment and, and uh, holding stuff and, and, and like that. So Well, he dropped the ball then, and I'll tell you why later on. Go ahead. It's just as much, you know, a part of all this as, as anything else, and I, I want to hear what you, what you have to say. But um, we, uh, we figured these little doggy augers that are two bucks at the local Lowe's home uh, supply store. Right would just fold up and, and be worthless. Yeah. And that maybe the heavier duty um auger style uh anchor would be a little bit better. But we were convinced that these commercial tie down anchors Right, were, these little three point things, cats, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, that's not the way it worked, at least in, in the soil in my yard. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and in truth the the soil in the in, in the uh in front of Jeb's hangar, where where the chest uh, was set up, uh, 
if it's not a worst case scenario, yeah, it's, it's real close. close. The only thing it'd be worse, I think, would be beach. Yeah, it'd be a san- dry, or sandy sand, beach. You know, yeah, or dunes or or uh, swamp or something. Yeah, now I, I, I mean, think swamp would hold better. <laughs> now you referred in the video to uh to also running these tests on california ground um and i'm trying i don't recall were the results kind of comparable or video that um we we really got kind of behind the eight ball with the calendar um because we we sit there we, these results weren't what we what we expected and we had this um supposition if you will that it was soil dependent and we didn't have time to throw all this stuff in the airplane and go fly up to to some other locale and and try to test it all mm-hmm. um so we shipped it uh we shipped a an anchor um out to california to mark cook who's editor of kit planes magazine which is an affiliated publication mark had uh has an airplane he has a hangar he has uh, uh, an engine crane, the same kind of engine crane that we used. So we shipped him all the gear to do this and told him what we wanted. And Mark was kind enough to, I'm sure it took him an afternoon also, to, uh, to do the test with the anchor we sent him, where we discovered that, yes, indeed, uh, the soil, he's near San Diego, I believe, um, that soil was much more uh, receptive, shall we say, to the 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 commercial uh, tie down anchor that we sent out there, so well, from that, was... that we didn't have any video of that, but from that we concluded that the basic design of the uh, and we sent him a doggy auger too, uh, and um, uh, he he discovered basically the same as we did that uh, uh, it was going to deform uh, before it really you know. The, the one we tried, which is just the, and, and for those listening who haven't seen any of this, um, these are the, the spiral wire. They're heavy, heavy gauge wire, but it's not high tensile strength uh, material um, that are um, just a spiral about two, three inches in diameter for about a foot and a half or so. And then it looks a like tri- a big. It looks like a big freaking corkscrew. Yeah, there's a there's a triangle on the end of it, and you, these things are really marketed for uh, light duty tent stakes or or or, or um, some kind of um, um, apparatus like that, but mainly for pets. Um, yeah. Just 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 strapping a pet down outside, so here the the pet can roam around, but is still on a leash. And there's a um, swivel ring on it to there, tie the pet's leash to, too. So there's it a swivel ring for exactly for that purpose. But they do make kind of nifty tie-down anchors to throw in the airplane in a pinch if you, if you need them. The one that we, we, we destroyed, too, doing our testing, the first one gave up the ghost um, as we were trying to put it in the ground. Mm, yeah, you showed that it broke off. The triangle head of it just snapped right off. E- even in your lo- loose soil down there. Even in this loose soil here in, in Florida. Yeah, what and happens is they'll hit something down below. That, I don't think that know, this happens. Has happened to, yeah, they they get into something that's tougher than they can hold up to. It might be a stone, it might be a tree root, but something that resists the twisting, and boom, they pop off where there's a stamped neural. Right. that holds that swivel ring in place. There's, a, there's a, what would other people would call a stress riser, yeah. uh, where that where that thing is stamped to keep the uh, the little swivel. 
from either riding up or riding down, I forget which. But um, we snapped the head of that sucker straight off. I was just using a, uh, about a two-foot piece of angle iron as a, as, a, as a lever to just twist it into the ground, and the head just snapped right off. The other one, we got into the ground successfully uh, and hitched up the, uh, the engine crane to it and started jacking away. And it basically destroyed itself. It gave its all for the car. <laughs> uh, well, it was, two things. It, yeah, go ahead. You, you mentioned how it deformed the top of it to triangle head. Mm-hmm. But there was a point where the triangle head stopped re- deforming. Uh-huh. And then as Jeb kept jacking on this engine hoist, the bloody thing did two more weird things. It stretched the 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 the, uh, the, the helix, stretched it out in overall length, and it backed itself out of the hole. Uh-huh. It was unscrewing. Oh, really? That's interesting. And it still held much higher uh, strain yeah. than any of the other devices did. <laughs> so if you extrapolate that all out. They're still not a bad choice as long as you can get them in the ground yeah. without snapping right. the head. And it, it wouldn't hurt to to uh, see if you could find some that don't have that uh, that stress riser on them, or yeah. or maybe even you know spend a little bit of time with a grinder and, and grind some of that down. I don't know if that would be beneficial or not. Yeah. But, uh, but let me ask uh, you this: <clears throat> Did you guys give any thought to? So you just kind of did a straightforward test. You 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 put these things in the ground, and then you put the uh, the device on them, and you pulled them straight back out. Did, well, we, we we did two different tests um, on all but the uh, the spiral auger uh, because we destroyed it. We couldn't test it at an angle. You did test um, them at an angle, okay? We did, we did test them vertically, and we tested them at an angle. Dave, maybe thirty degree angle. Yeah, I was going to say between thirty and forty degrees offset. Yeah. Because yeah. so many of us, I know when I tie down airplane. If I'm putting my own stakes in the ground, yeah. I like to bring them out at an angle. Right. And did they hold better at an angle? There was Maybe very little it's difference. Just me, but I like to think if I get all three tie downs snug at an angle, it reduces the airplane's ability to wiggle against the other ropes. Well, and that sort of leads me to my other question. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, my, did, my recollection, Jack, yeah. is that they, the anchors did not do better. Right. At an angle, um, and that's partly because of their design. Right. All three of these these commercial anchors that we tested um, have these about foot long metal spikes that right. basically look like a sixteen penny nail on steroids. Yep. Um, and you hammer that <laughs> hammer that into the ground. Um, yeah, I mean, Buffy the Vampire Slayer would, would kill for one. <laughs> no, nah, they need to be wood, not well, aluminum. Made out of wood. Wood, or wood yeah. But, um, Silver. Or silk. They, they all go in at an angle. Yeah. Okay. So when you put the, the load that you're, that you're applying to the anchor, when you put that at an angle, you're automatically pretty much... Um, minimizing on on one of the three uh, uh, pins that go into the ground, right. the uh, uh, the force it can withstand. So in my recollection, I don't have the results in front of me. All of this is in the um, um, June issue of uh, of uh, Aviation Consumer, um, and on the, the web the, at a link. Yeah, and I, on the web at aviationconsumer.com. But um, my recollection is that all the all the commercial anchors fared worse 
at an angle uh, than they did vertically. Hmm. Yeah. That reason. Yeah. The other question, and then we need to move on here. I'm sorry. We kind of this is yeah. pretty yeah. interesting, but we need to not spend the entire podcast okay. talking about this. Is did you folks give any? So you just kind of measured absolute you know, foot pounds or whatever it was strength, you know, that it took to pull them out of the ground. Did you give any thought to how much strength was actually required to effectively hold an airplane in place? Yes, we did. Uh, and we did that in the podcast a little bit. Also, the FAA has a very old advisory circular out there. I forget the number on it, but it's, it's on the website. It's on the FAA's website. It basically is, you know, securing airplanes. And uh, they have drawings. They have uh, 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 recommended, uh, they have basically architectural drawings of of how to uh, build uh, permanent tie downs for airplanes, as well as um, um, how to tie down an airplane on open ground, like we were attempting. Um, they say uh, the FAA recommends, I should say, um, three thousand pounds uh, anchors that can withstand three thousand pounds for piston singles and 4,000 pounds for uh, piston twins. Uh, we didn't get anywhere close to that. With, with, well, now, uh, here was my question in reading things. that. Yeah, go ahead. Is that 3,000 pounds in total lifting force over all three points or per point? They're saying basically per point. Per point. And, and, yeah, and, and they, they say 65 knots of wind is what you should be aiming for. And if you think about it, you know, you take a Skyhawk. And a yeah. Skyhawk will fly at 55 knots. Yeah, but the chance that the wind is going to be just exactly right to get full lift out of the wing is so I mean, unlikely. How many, how many times have yeah, we heard about uh, airplanes dancing on their tie-downs? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's and, because – but that's not because the tie-down isn't strong enough. That's because the tie-down isn't tight enough. Well, no. It, it's the rope stretch, even chain stretches, and, and, and you know, tie-down rings – uh, there's a certification standard for tie-down rings uh, in, yeah. in the FARs that, you know, they're designed to withstand that 3,000, 4,000 pounds also. Uh, don't, you know, don't fixate on that because I'm, I'm not specifically sure of that number, but there is such a, uh, a uh, tie-down ring standard in the FARs for aircraft certification. Putting all that aside for a moment, though, uh, you take a 2,000-pound a airplane, let's say my debonair, uh, actually weighs 2,200 empty, okay? Um, and, you know, you park it on a ramp uh, or on a, on a grassy area, and a, a stiff wind comes along. And I don't care, you know, whether it's dead on, you know, the nose or, or whatever. You're going to get some wind flowing over the, the wings. You're going to get some wind flowing over, flowing under the airplane, you're going to get wind flowing over the tail, you know, around it and everything. All these gusts, you can't predict what's going to happen. What will happen if the wind is strong enough is the, is the airplane's going to get light. It's designed to get light in, in a stiff breeze, okay? Okay, yeah, uh, but... It's doing what its physics demand of it, and it's going to get light on its wheels. Um, well, and you can get differential, too. You can have yeah. an upwind wing get really right. light while the downwind wing gets really heavy, and create slack where there normally wouldn't be any, and put all that load of that uh, that lifting wing and any sideways momentum behind it on one tie down. We've seen instances where a twin tied down with nylon rope uh, had two of the three ropes break mm -hmm. and let the uh, let the uh, the uh, twin. Uh, I guess 
uh, wind shock itself. Yeah. It kind of rotated to the position of least resistance. Weather vane. Weather vane. Yeah. Weather vane. That's the word. That's the word. And wound up, you know, tangling itself in with the beach 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was fortunate that it didn't come loose. If that third rope had given way, uh, there's no telling where the airplane might have wound up and uh, what else it might have injured along the way getting there. One 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 final story here, and, and, and we will move on. Um, Paul Bertarelli, who's my boss on Consumer, um, likes to tell the story of one of the hurricanes that came through down here back in, I think it was 05, uh, came through south of Sarasota, basically hit the Punta Gorda Airport. <clears throat> and after the storm went through the next day or so, he went down there with a camera, and was walking around the airport, you know, photographing the the damage, uh, photographing damage to hangars, photographing damage to airplanes, and and uh, there were airplanes that were tied down that were no longer airplanes. There were airplanes that were in hangars that were no longer airplanes, and he's walking down this row of hangars, and he comes up on this guy, standing in front of an open hangar, and there's an airplane, in the hangar, and the airplane, looks like it's in good shape almost unscathed perhaps and paul says to the guy hey it looks like your airplane came through all right and the guy without without even looking in his direction just continuing to stare into the hangar says that's my hangar but that's not my airplane (laughs) (laughs) a friend of mine lives uh uh near stennis there on the gulf coast uh his uh hangar kept his airplane, a Cessna 150, from being blown away by a hurricane. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, the hurricane took away the doors, uh-huh. and the airplane being trapped inside a steel hangar didn't fly away, but it did rattle around a lot. Yeah. yeah. A whole lot. Yeah. And when um, he finally got to it, the most recognizable thing that would indicate to you that it was an airplane was the uh the prop contorted though it was wow yeah yeah i can't imagine um well you know and we do need to move on hangar doors are really the issue um and i've got a bifold here on my current hangar uh, and i don't know how that would really rate it's got some some heavy duty um locks that would lock it in place I tell you uh, what they do here in Kansas but, with those doors. What? They use big uh, C-clamp type vice grips. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. When when the big storms are coming in, they'll have like three uh-huh. of those per half between right. the door and the frame behind it, uh-huh. uh, latching that puppy down. That's in addition to the big lock. Right. So that it can't flex against the frame in the big winds. It <laughs> yeah. works fairly well. But Jeb, your plan still—if there's a big hurricane headed your way—your plan is still basically run away, right? Is is yeah, run run fast, run far. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is basically get in the airplane and um, um, first stop is up in Georgia where I have um, family home right, and, right. and some resources up there, and I'll I'll leave the airplane there and drive back and worry about the home property, worry about the homestead. Right, right. Uh, it just makes more sense to me to get the airplane out of harm's way if I can than to, you know, just 
you know, go over in a corner and, and throw a blanket over myself and, and, and huddle. Yeah. And you now know how to tie it, tie it down when you, when you leave up there. Or at least I know how not to tie it. I'm not to, okay, so before we move on here, I have, this is just to give you an idea. This is how my mind works, all right? I'm watching your little video there, which I really enjoyed your video, but I noticed these kinds of things. And uh, I have to point out that your production assistant kind of made a basic, you know, kind of continuity 101 mistake. And that is out at the... In one in one series and, and tucked in. That's right. Your shirt, was, your shirt was untucked at the beginning of the video, and then by the end of the video, it was magically tucked in. That's right. Yeah. So... Those were shot on different days. Well, those were shot like five weeks apart. That's why they have somebody whose job it totally is to just like make notes and take Polaroids and or you know whatever they take these days. But uh, yeah, continuity. Anyways, uh, pretty interesting stuff. And uh, And, uh, uh, Jeb, anything he's incontinent. (laughs) Oh wait, I didn't mean that. So listen, I, um, I, originally I was going to open this segment by saying we were going to let Dave get his rant out of the way early on, but it's no longer early on in Dave, this episode. Dave has a rant. Dave has a rant here. There we first, I first heard about this story. Someone in the forums pointed it out to me, and then it became a kind of a. It was in the aviation news. Um, this is the story about uh, some uh, GA pilots down on the, near the border in Mexico, uh, in the border of Mexico, I guess Texas or New Mexico or something, and uh, who were getting ready to go flying and were suddenly. Uh, basically rousted by uh, by uh, immigration officials, I guess, and uh, and and then that suddenly brought to light a number of pilots talking about stories were just outrageous. I, I don't know. And then Dave, you posted something um, where you, you were quite quite outspoken on the subject. You, can you you want to relate to us a little bit about your thoughts on this subject? And well, uh, there's nothing new or particularly uh, uh, groundbreaking here. Uh, I'm back to my old contention that the uh, that the government, in its regard for general aviation, is just totally foobar and out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think this is at a policy level where there's somebody sitting in D.C. making these decisions. I think this is at a institutional inertia level where the moods and attitudes down on the street level or the ramp level uh, of the last uh, uh, leadership is continued unabated here on the ground level, and we have things like uh, customs and border protection officers drawing down their weapons and having other law enforcement with them to uh, 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 point in the face of a guy getting ready to leave Long Beach, that bastion <laughs> of terrorist activity. That's that's the thing that gets Long Beach. Yeah, that's the thing that gets Loretto, me. Mexico. The guy is is. You know, uh, presumably an unregistered airplane. Yep. Um, you know that they have run through the computer and figured out who owns the airplane, and you know if it comes up in any any uh, records or or anything like that. And all of a sudden, the airplane is surrounded. I don't know if his wife and kids are in the airplane. Or yeah, what? let me just kind of yeah. let me just read this one paragraph to kind of set the scene here. All right, this is from a, a Russ Nile story in, uh, in on Avweb. It said uh, uh, the experience of Long Beach, California pilot David Perry and his three passengers a couple weeks ago. Uh, Perry said he was going through his pre-start checklist for a flight to Loreto, Mexico, on May 22nd when his Cessna 210 was suddenly surrounded by yelling CBP. I think that's what. Uh, uh, Customs and Border Patrol, uh, CBP agents, and local airport police. Weapons drawn. Uh, the customs agents had an M16. Uh, 
who ordered them out of the airplane. Uh, the quote from Perry is, they were yelling at us to put our hands on our head. Uh, and uh, Perry, being a, a retired military officer, said he makes frequent flights to his second home in Laredo. And uh, he, and then Perry later in the story claims that he's actually since spoken to other pilots who've had similar experiences. Um, sounds pretty outrageous. Uh, it is. It is outrageous. Now, um, if if I, I was if I was in a rider truck, kind of actual outrageous stuff. This is beyond yeah. outrageous. If I was in a rider truck, they wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. Um, I, well, it, it, they they were so adamant that this is this is really not a typical thing, but we can't rule it out in the future. And we don't see why there's anything wrong with this. Anybody who hadn't been doing anything shouldn't be worried about having loaded weapons pointed in their faces while they're getting ready to go to their vacation. Home. Yeah. I, I confess I, I don't know the answer to this, but has there been any follow-up on this? Uh, the, there's another sentence in this AvWeb story. This is an AvWeb story from June 7, so this is like two weeks ago. Um, there, ha- there has been follow-up, but it's been wholly unsatisfactory. Okay, and so did uh, CBP, uh, what's their story? Well, the, the, the follow-up basically um, was that CBP, I think, said basically, yeah, you know, this was a little bit over the top perhaps, but we reserve the right to do it again anytime we feel like it. Yeah. So this wasn't just somebody going off the reservation. This really is CBP policy. They're not totally ashamed of this. Oh, no, they're not Jack, you're making that. the mistake of thinking that. that these morons have policy. Okay? <laughs> well, no, what I'm referring to is um, we had that incident uh, a, f- a bunch of months back where, what was it, a t- some local TSA people interpreted something from one of the ring binders and, and went nuts on, where was it, down in right. Memphis or something? Plan. All right. Right, they showed up, they set up tables outside an airport and started demanding uh, information, identification, and do an ID check. Right. And people with no justification, no cause, and no freaking right to be there. Right. And in that instance, even TSA had enough shame to be, you know, kind of apologetic and, and, and say, you know, oops. Has CBP done anything comparable here? No. Well, no. CBP um, wouldn't necessarily do that because they're, you know, they're issue is international operations um so you're really talking about you know border areas first of all secondly um even that you know tsa admits that was a little bit off the reservation uh cbp is not admitting that anything associated with with this long beach incident was off the reservation on an official level i'm sure there were some heated phone calls uh, back and forth between uh um, um, the field office and headquarters. There's another story on AvWeb dated a couple of days later. The, the story that we just referenced was uh, June 7. There's a June 9 story on AvWeb that is a follow-up. And let me just read the first couple of sentences here. A spokeswoman for the Washington headquarters of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, says the drawing of weapons and a ramp inspection of aircraft in Long Beach, California last month was justified but not, quote, normal, unquote. <laughs> uh, the, spokes- the spokesperson also told AvWeb that general aviation pilots can expect more ramp checks by CBP agents thanks to the newly instituted electronic advanced passenger information system, EAPIS. Oh, that's what that was all about. She stressed it's unlikely many of the checks will have the level of intensity employed May 22 with Long Beach pilot uh, David Perry and his three passengers. Uh, The spokesperson said in an interview on Tuesday there was a heightened alert involved 
in the Long Beach operation, yeah, sure. Uh, but she also said she could not discuss the circumstances that led to more aggressive posture than normal by CBP and local of police. Of All of that is is what we call here blowing snow. Yeah, you know, Those I mean, we're timers who remember the way the uh, the weather reports were constructed before METARs and TAFs will understand exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Let, let's not let's not beat this to death. Let's kind of we we've made our point and people know how we feel about this. But let's invite listeners to read these stories and 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 however you feel. Contact your representatives and and and, well, and, you know. and, and and something bears keeping in mind here, folks, uh, in terms of how this could happen and why and what the common thread is. Customs and Border Protection and the Transportation Security Administration—that's uh, our uh, totally screwed assholes out there. Uh, <laughs> they now I have a decision to make, David. <laughs> they belong to the same cabinet agency. That's Higdon Hotel India Golf Delta Oscar. All Oscar, right, and I'm a junior. I wouldn't want you to get screwed, you know, confused with my war hero father. Uh, These are both uh, wings of the Department of Homeland Security. And it's high time we started to come up with some better explanations for DHS than Department of Homeland Security. Uh, I'm thinking detrimentally horrible screwing. But you can probably come up with more. I'd love to see. Them. Okay, all right. Yeah. So uh, you know, take a look at this not, stuff. Not that we feel strongly. No. Right. Yeah. Anyways. All right. Moving on. Um, Thank God I was thirsty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on, a, on a on a much happier note, um, we have uh, we I was it was called to our attention, at least to my attention, by one of our listeners, Navion Pilot, in the forums, um, a really cool. Uh, home building project here. Um, a guy, a guy by the name of Jack Bally, uh, is building a one-third scale replica, replica B seventeen. All right, and that this is, is cool. This is just yeah. the coolest thing. Uh, it's cool. still in early stages of construction. Uh, it looks like he's working on the fuselage and and so forth. Um, but uh, it's, it's let's see if I can pull out some of the story here. Uh, more than thousand hours. Oh, he's a pilot. <laughs> what? I'm just reading a quote here. What does it say? I'm uh, talking about the people who, the guy principally who's building this, and he's trying to blow a clear nose bowl for the front of the, for the nose of the air of the of this B-17. He says, "Quote: Jack has built a mold for the front clear nose bowl. He has also built a vacuum system and an oven to try to form the 080-inch thick nose bowl. No success yet." But with a little more beer, he thinks he can do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's just our kind of pilot, huh? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Our kind of home builder. This but, is going to be you know, great. Uh, he's going to put. He's actually going to put four engines on it. Let's see here. It says here someplace what kind of engines he's going to put on it. So help me if you can find that. Um, he's going to put. Uh, Jack plans to power the plane with four four-cylinder air-cooled eighty-horsepower Hearth F thirty two-stroke boxer engines what's a boxer engine um, uh, boxer engines are horizontally opposed i see orders. okay and uh does it say in here what sort of seating he's planning to put in this thing is it going to be um i haven't read the whole thing i just got that that one quote i said that's gotta that's gotta be on the podcast no it's going to be at least uh, one it's not going to be too wide it's not big enough for too wide uh because it does show yeah. a picture of the uh well, yeah guys, i see uh, guys there's uh, a there's a picture in here yeah okay in on in, in the article it shows one seat. Yeah, that's the one I suddenly saw. That uh, so uh, a very very cool project. And from the looks of the fuselage as it's uh, as it's you know standing now or sitting now, it, it looks very very uh, uh, 
faithful to the uh, shape yeah, and so forth. Of, I'm impressed. Yeah. That's that's quite the deal. That's going to be quite a thing to see fly. And I, I just I, I hope it appears at Oshkosh one day or, or Sun and Fun, and uh, that that'll be a blast uh, to uh, see it fly and, and see it up close. And who knows? It's going, to be, it's going to be interesting because I don't think I've ever seen anyone working on anything that small with that many different engines. And back in the heydays of the ultralight movement, uh, very late 70s and into the early 80s, there was a, a little single-seater called the Laser. I mm-hmm. uh, had an inverted V-tail and twin, two, count them, two, eight-horsepower, two-stroke engines mounted on wings. Yeah. Here's an, here's an interesting... Had an engine out, the, the, prescri- the procedure for an engine out, was to uh, shut off the other one. Here's an interesting tidbit here, reading some of the, the details on this. The, um, he's using these uh, uh, 80 horsepower engines, uh, four of them, but um, they, they, the engines turn at a, at a relatively high RPM, um, and there's not enough room for um, a... Uh, gear reduction drive, propeller speed reduction, so he's going to just throttle down the engines to 60 horsepower uh, um, per engine, which is, you know, do the math real quickly, 240 horsepower. Still a fair amount of horsepower, yeah. There's still yeah. a fair amount of horsepower. The airplane um, it says 34-foot, 7-inch wingspan and 24-foot long aircraft, which uh, the author of this puts in parentheses, sounds a tiny bit bigger than a Cessna 152. <laughs> so we're taking basically the size of a Cessna 152 and putting 240 horsepower in it over spread over four engines. I want to be there when this thing flies. I know. This is going to be great. Sound awesome. This is going to be great. So congratulations as to... He, uh, as long as he's keeping the engine RPM at a speed below where the tips go supersonic... Right. His hearing should survive well enough to be able to tell people how it flies. Yeah. But I, I, we ought to chip in for, for more beer for the guy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to see him get that nose bowl right. Let's see if we can track this guy down if he goes to Oshkosh. I mean, his airplane won't be at Oshkosh this year, but maybe he will. Let's see. Where is he located here? It's, he's in Dixon, Illinois. So very cool. Very cool. We're going to have to follow up on that one. Hey, we've got three, count them, three off-field landings of the week this week. So, uh I guess that doesn't make it an off-field landing of the week if you've got three of them. It's at one-third. Well, so. we haven't had – we've been inconsistent. So That's true. So we're catching up or, catch up or putting some in the bank or however you want to characterize it here. All right, first one is a plane makes emergency landing on road. Stowe, Ohio, a two-seat Cessna 152 was forced to make an emergency landing on Fish Creek Road in Stowe. Uh, the plane was. This is another one of these. This is just like the plane was being used for a flying lesson from a Kate State, Kent State University, or out of the Kent State University airport uh, in Stowe. Uh, he says. He said uh, the instructor is quoted as saying, "We train for this all the time. It was just one of those things where your training kicks in and you do what you're supposed to do." So, uh, I guess he he was with us. Oh with a, man, get out! I didn't notice this earlier. But 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 here's the punchline. Okay, yeah. The the the, the instructor's name is Rob Demovic. Okay. Demovic, um, earlier, I want to say like a week or so before this, won the SafeCon 2009 Power Off Landing Competition. (laughs) 
runs <laughs> through right. the National Intercollegiate <laughs> Flying Association. That's what so, I was just about to buttonhole. <laughs> if there was anybody you would want to make this power-off landing in this airplane on this highway, it's this guy. That's right. So, and, 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 and in all truth, I, I came across this. I was doing an interview with the executive director of NIFA, the National Intercollegiate Flying Association, talking about spot landings for a, an AvWeb podcast to accompany a story written by A. Figden. Ah, okay. Oh, really? Um, that appeared in, in Aviation Safety, yeah. And that's where I came across this. So kudos I remember to... remember that story. Yeah, yeah kudos to uh, the instructor here, Rob Demovic. Kudos to, uh, to NIFA, uh, the National Intercollegiate Flying Association, and, um, you know, a job well done. Yeah, that's right. And you can read all about doing power-off landings in that article. <laughs> that's, right. that's right, yeah. That's number one. Number two, man, 83, lands plane on expressway. An 83-year-old pilot was forced to land on a busy expressway Sunday morning after experiencing engine trouble. Ralph, uh-oh, squid, squealia, <laughs> S-Q-U-E-G-L-I-A, squealia, that's what I'm going with. Squealia, squealia right, Squealia, uh, who's been flying since 1944, said he was careful to avoid moving cars as he landed the plane on a stretch of the Sawgrass Expressway just north of Oakland park boulevard it was a perfect landing he said so congratulations what kind of airplane is this it looks it's a hummelbird a, a hummelbird what's a i've heard of hummelbirds what's describe a, a hummelbird for us that's Des- a legal logs yeah okay describe a hummelbird for people who are not familiar hummelbird is a uh, single seat bubble canopy low wing all metal experimental uh airplane uh it qualifies as an ultralight in terms of speed and weight uh and most Hummelbirds fly around behind a one-half Volkswagen engine that is two of the four cylinders. There are other engine options for it, but that's, that's one a lot of guys like to use because it you know, makes about 40 horsepower, and it's direct drive, does it at low RPM. So you can use a, a prop that won't go supersonic. Uh, you know, it's a very simple, straightforward, constant cord wing. Uh, flying tail. Uh, wow, uh, Hummels have been around. Hummelbirds have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and really nice design. Flew one many, many years ago when I was skinnier. And then number three uh, is uh, plan, plane lands on Pittsfield Golf Course. Uh, and uh, so this is uh, Pittsfield Township, Michigan, a single-engine prop plane with two people aboard, uh, made a safe emergency landing on a fairway at a southeastern Michigan golf course. Now, here's the kicker. So congratulations for making a safe landing. Um, good job. But then you, I, it's almost like, sh- I don't know if it's like a shameful, it's like the police made him taxi the airplane back to the airport on public roads. It says the plane then drove on roads under police escort back to the airport. Uh, and this just shows I'm not a picture sure how that works. How it's ta- taxing. I'm not sure how that works either. But that you know, I I don't know that I'd mind that. I, I think the last thing I would want to try to do uh, without a couple of beers <laughs> is, <laughs> is, is is go ahead and take it, it goes off. our reputation. Yeah, really. No, uh, Wait, we don't have a reputation. Yeah. The plane, the pilot said he lost power shortly after takeoff from Ann Arbor Municipal Airport on Tuesday morning. That's right near my friend Rob lives. The friend who's flying, riding in the C-47 to uh, Oshkosh lives right around the corner from Ann Arbor 
airport. Uh, he brought it looks the plane like the down. Tailwheel airplane. It, too. it does sort of. Uh, he brought the uh, the plane down on the fairway of the fifth hole, the Stonebridge Golf Club, uh, the airport and golf oh, course. So he birdied the hole. <laughs> <laughs> eagled, eagled. <laughs> Eagle Bowl. That's right. <laughs> Anyways, congratulations to all three of our off-field landing of the weeks, uh, uh, or off-field landings of the week, and uh, uh, good job. Got them all down safely. That's terrific. And uh, yeah, I mean, you guys all get prizes. Uh, you get our no prize prize. That's right. That's right. Anyways, you walked away. Yeah. So electric airplanes. I'm not sure what I think about the idea of an electric airplane. I. I you know? As long as you don't fly back across the extension cord, you should be okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, uh, electric plane makes maiden flight. Reading from uh, a story on uh, airventure.org, uh, the uh, unique, well, it's, it's, it's spelled Y-U-N-E-E-C. I'm not sure, unique or yet unique. International's E-430 electric-powered aircraft made its first flights in China on Friday morning, June 12th. After further flight testing is completed, the comp- composite airplane will be shipped to the United States, where company officials are hoping to gain this certification. Is, this is designed and built in China? Apparently. And, uh, the last person out of Wichita, please turn off the lights. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know well, about if that. If we turn off the lights, the electric airplane won't fly. Oh, okay. Well, we'll have more juice, though, left over. I'll tell you what, though. It's an interesting-looking little ship. It is. Uh, it really is. Uh, the aspect ratio on that wing is just off the scale. And the adverse yaw in it has got, you know, unless they did, you know, the really savvy thing, gave it differential ailerons. Uh, and, and the V-tail, all reduced drag, uh, high aspect ratio wing will let it cruise high pretty easily uh you know there's no no arguable reason why we can't find a happy medium between battery power and uh and brushless motors to make this kind of thing practical Uh, and you know throw in a hydrogen fuel cell and it actually has cross-country potential yeah it's kind of cool it's just i i just I guess battery technology is getting better and better, and maybe you can store up a, a what does it say, like an hour and a half um, capacity for this thing? So. You know, you don't need many more pieces of evidence of how battery technology is advanced than the cell phone that you're holding today versus the one that you held five years ago versus the one that you held five years before that. Uh, you know, uh, cell phone that I use today has... Uh, nine hours of talk time and it's the smallest battery of any phone i've ever had yeah but uh, so we know we know the technology's come along uh with more demand more use more production prices will get down to the point where one of these electric airplanes doesn't cost as much as a new 182 turbo well it doesn't say anything here about range or endurance um, no it doesn't says a um, total of four flights took place on June 12, consisting of four short, and then in parentheses, one-minute straight-line hops to test controls, response, and power systems. So it has flown. It hasn't flown very far or for very long. Um, it, it, the, some of the stats on this, uh, the motor output is 40 kilowatts or 54 horsepower at 2,450 RPM. Uh, the empty weight of the aircraft without battery 
is 392 pounds. Ooh. The, the battery weight is uh, 158 and a half pounds. That's six battery packs, lithium polymer batteries. Um, as oh, battery really? Yeah. As, as battery technology, you know, improves, um, th- that's that's kind of kind of interesting to me. That that's not a whole lot of battery weight. Uh, that's not nearly as much battery weight as I thought was going to be required for this. Yeah. They're, uh, lithium polymer know. lets them make them in shapes and uh, yeah. uh, proportions that uh, that some of the old rigid, more rigid. I mean, they can even be flexible for God's sake. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to have uh, they're going to have two separate exhibits at Oshkosh. Right. They're going to display this airplane that's in the photographs, along with a a, a, a Part 103 legal Flight Star Spider, which is a single seat ultralight from Flightstar and uh, our old buddy Tom Pagini who also imports the uh, the uh, Flight uh, flight Design CT uh, LSA and they're going to have an electric hang glider uh, you know it looks like we're really approaching the cusp of uh, recreational flying by electric power being a, a, a practical idea could be could be one little bit of uh, uh, one little note here is uh, they're so they're shipping this aircraft uh, it's going to end up in Los Angeles after a little while where they're going to do some more flight tests um, at Camarillo Airport there it will undergo FAA certification testing with test pilot and longtime EA member Dave Morse um, Dave Morse is the guy who gave me my pilot's license uh, Dave Morse really? is a... Uh, he just uh, gave it to you? Yeah, I know. I just met him on the street. He said, hey, hey you, know, you look like a good guy. No, no. He was... Hey, uh, Dave Morse is a uh, is a fairly well-known uh, uh, test pilot and racing pilot out there on the West Coast. and with uh, uh, the Lance Air. With Lance Air for a long time, yeah. And... Uh, and uh, he uh, is also a designated examiner. Easy for me to say, designated examiner. And he's the one who gave me my check ride. And uh, as a result, he gave me. So that's my little claim to fame there. Well, sharp guy, sharp guy. That's just very electrifying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, bamboo bomber. So we talked about the bamboo. I forget exactly even what the context was, but it came up in this, in last week or the week before or something like that. And we got uh, and we were kind of unclear. I think we were unclear. I know I was unclear exactly what the derivation. I should have contributed more, and yeah. I didn't for some reason. But we got we got. I don't know why we were unclear. But go ahead. We got email from uh, from listener uh, uh, Mike Blakeney, who, by the way, not by the way, uh, is uh, was uh, a big part of the early Avweb uh, audio podcasts, uh, right. and uh, has since moved on to Mike, bigger and Mike's better things. And Mike's also a Bonanza debonair owner. Yeah, debonair, and, I should say. Um, uh, yeah. We'll try not to hold that against him. <laughs> well, I, I understand your perspective and he writes this he says hey guys i rode in a bamboo bomber about 15 years ago and got to fly it uh, uh, some from the right seat i've always remembered that the owner told me it was called that because it had a wooden spar due to metal being hard to come by during the war for the project Uh, i looked around on the net and it appears that the wings were mostly built built from wood including spar plywood leading edges and a mixture of metal and wood ribs uh, and uh, covered in fabric 
He said, we, we took off uh, with about five aboard from about 3,500-foot strip, and I was lucky enough to end up in the front. I remember it performed well with a full load and to be very sweet flying airplane. Just thought I'd chime in with that. And uh, he says he's hoping to be at Oshkosh this summer, and we get a chance to meet. You guys know him. I, I don't, but uh, I enjoyed his work at AvWeb, and uh, he's apparently a very, very active uh, professional voice guy. He does radio announcements and things, and uh, um, he's got a, just an awesome radio voice. And uh, if you've heard it, you've probably heard it. It's it, I, You go listen to his website, and uh, it's a, a familiar voice. I'm sure I've heard it in a number of different places, not not um, just the least of which being the AvWeb uh, audio podcast. So anyways, thank you, Mike. We appreciate that. And, if somebody wants to see an aerial or two of the a bamboo bomber, I've uh, sent Jack a link to put on the website of a picture that I happen to know about. Uh, great old airplane. Uh, several friends of mine are checked out on a local one that belongs to the commemorative Air Force. They restored it. They got it back in the air. And uh, uh, their biggest, uh, what they're most respectful of in that airplane is uh, an engine loss because the props do not feather. Mm -hmm. So if you lose an engine in the bamboo bomber, uh, you've got one of those big radials out there windmilling. You don't dare slow it down enough to let that prop stop windmilling. And there's just barely enough rudder authority to keep it straight against the critical engine. Uh, but from the time the first engine fails, you are on a steady rate descent to the point of arrival. It is coming down. Other than that, they say it's a treat to fly. You know, it's it's not really difficult uh uh, big, heavy. I've flown in one half a dozen times. They're theirs, and photographed it a couple of times. And uh, boy, they used to be just as common as dirt. Uh, and now there's so relatively few of them around. But they mm -hmm. are really worth looking at. Wing spars, leading edges are uh, uh, plywood. Uh, most of the internal structure is uh, is wood, including the built-up wooden ribs. Uh, control surfaces are wood. Fuselage is uh, welded steel tube, but some of the formers that give the fuselage its shape, uh, the floor in the cabin, and a bunch of other structural uh, and, and, and non-structural parts are wood. Yeah. Uh, and, and Bamboo Bomber is probably among the kinder nicknames that the airplane earned back during its World War II service days. Are there any you can share with us on this family podcast? What's that? Are there any of those other names that you can share with us on this family podcast? Oh, I had it up last week. Uh, That's all right. We'll leave it. Give me, a, give me one second. All right, here. go ahead. Do, do, okay. do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah. Nope, that was the wrong one. Eh, too late. We're moving on here. Yeah. Moving on, okay, moving on. Moving on. Um, before uh, we do shout-outs... Bamboo Bomber, Useless 78, the Wichita Wobbler, Brass Hat Double-Breasted Cub, Box Kite, Rhapsody in Glue, and the San Joaquin Bowfighter. I like those, actually. I'm glad you, I'm glad you found those. That's fun. Yeah. Rhapsody, yeah. Rhapsody in Glue. I like that. That's, that's good. Yeah, Rhapsody in Glue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, since I know we've got some pro pilots who fly for fractionals listening to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is an interesting story. Tell I us. I know these guys were getting uh, recurrent uh, from this institution. Uh, just quick and dirty. It's not a shout-out. It's a quick and dirty mention. If you have not heard 
if your employer was sending you to Flight Safety International for recurrent and you're now laid off, if you've been laid off from the, since the first of the year, Flight Safety International is offering free training to laid off pilots and maintenance techs. There's, you know, restrictions do apply. There's some qualifiers here. But if you fall into that category where you were working for an outlet, fractional, charter, whatever, and you were getting your recurrent uh, on a contractual basis with Flight Safety International, you may want to check into this because they're offering you an opportunity to stay current in the aircraft that you were being trained in, and if that's multiple aircraft, I believe it applies to the multiple types, uh, for free, uh, courtesy of flight safety, so that uh, when time comes and people want to call you back or another job comes up flying the same equipment, uh, you can be ready, ready to go. That's very cool. Yeah, it's, it's very it's generous of them. Hats very, off very flight clever. safety yeah. for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And now I'm ready. Shoutouts. Uh, so, David, tell us about uh, Dr. Williams. Oh, uh, Dr. Sam Williams. Uh, man, what an interesting guy he w- always was to talk to. Uh, quiet, unassuming. Uh, he was uh, had a congenital vision problem that deprived him of his, most of his sight later in years. Uh, but he was the genius that came up with these little tiny turbofan jet engines that made the Boeing cruise missile possible. All those cruise missiles that you saw pictures of being launched and flying through windows during the first Gulf War, uh, those those had Williams International engines in them. Uh, Dr. Williams invented, designed, patented, and then built a business around small, simpler turbofan engines, smaller, simpler, fewer parts count than anybody had ever dreamed imaginable, anybody had ever done before, and others have learned to emulate, if not imitate, in the years since. Uh, Dr. Williams uh, passed away uh, on Monday the 22nd. He was 88. Uh, We would not have a citation jet or a citation jet line. We would not have a Sino square engine. We would not have an Eclipse 500, even though they went with a different engine. But, ultimately. yes, I was going to mention this. Um, that That is the same Williams. And, uh, I, I mean, I would credit that engine, even though it didn't get used, that engine with one of the key things that kind of sparked the whole VLJ movement. Uh, well, it, it, it goes back farther than that. Uh, that engine made possible the Citation jet line that Cessna used to reinvent the entry-level jet uh, starting in the late 1980s and now represented by four different models of CJ uh, smaller versions, different versions, more powerful versions but all following the same design philosophy simplicity, ceramic coated parts moderate pressure ratios uh, uh, smoother, less complex assembly and manufacturing methods high reliability uh, they've shown up in everything from the uh, uh, the uh, Diamond D jet and the Cirrus SJ50. Both use Williams International engines. The Sino Swearingen SJ30-2 and the original SJ30. Uh, a prototype or two that uh, that uh, uh, Bert Rutan designed to give the uh, EJ22, the FX22. Uh, 
a 700-pound thrust jet. That was a cool airplane. I really liked Little that airplane. Little bitty engines. They didn't yeah. weigh 100 pounds apiece. And they put out seven pounds, put out more than seven pounds of thrust per pound of weight. Hmm. Uh, the uh, White Knight and White Knight Two, uh, flying on Williams International engines. So, uh, the industry, the community, lost a highly influential visionary gentleman, and he really was a gentleman, real human being. Did a lot of philanthropic work, particularly around the uh, areas of uh, vision loss. Uh, 88 gone on uh, this past Monday. Uh, thankfully, the institution he started and the philosophies that he inspired uh, are well represented and will continue without him. Yeah. Um, changing the subject here a little bit, uh, I wanted to uh, call attention to uh, a blog that is written by one of our listeners, uh, a listener who goes by the name of DC Fly. Uh, has a blog which he calls. There you go. Here, I had it a second ago. Uh, the blog is called Flying Man, and Flying uh, Man. He writes about a lot of his flying experiences. The thing that caught my attention is a recent post, um, a fairly long post with a lot of great pictures about a, a flight that he did over a Memorial Day weekend, where he just did some great flying and uh, went to some really fascinating places. A, a grass strip where they were able to camp by the side of the runway, and uh, a place that I want to go someday. Um, although you can't land there. There's no airport there. Uh, he shows a picture of, uh, of uh, Huffman, Huffman Prairie Flying Field, uh, which is uh, the uh, location in Ohio where the Wright brothers did a lot of their uh, um, testing after they came back from, uh, from Kitty Hawk. And so uh, he, he visited there and did just flew all over the place. It's a great story, and uh, I encourage people to take a look at it, uh, and, uh, as well as some of his other posts as well. So that's uh, DC Fly. Let's see if he has his real it looks name. looks like a fun trip, even with the long walk between yeah. the campsite airplane in that one area yeah he's uh, his name is greg he's from maryland and uh the quote he has on his uh, on his the front page of his uh, of his blog is from saint saint x saint exupery uh who wrote i fly because it frees my mind from the tyranny of petty things so that's the flying man blog it's uh, randyarmadillo.com www.randyarmadillo.com and something about uh, the concept of a Randy Armadillo just is not resonating with me. It's a great blog. Take a look at it. It's a, it's, it's a great, great, um, uh, great URL, great uh, domain name. Yeah. And I'll check out the blog for sure. Um, I, I don't have much of a shout out here. Um, uh, kind of, sort of, maybe. Um, Air France 447 yeah. uh, is still... Um, uh, I, they're they're starting to wind down. I think what I would call the recovery uh, of, uh, of the search for and recovery of, of uh, uh, passenger uh, bodies and uh, and floating wreckage, um, but they have not found uh, the uh, the main wreckage of the aircraft. Uh, they haven't found the um, flight data and cockpit voice recorders yet. And just you know, kind of a, a shout out to all those people who I don't know. Uh, and, and may never really be known who they are, uh, but are out there, you know, 24/7 uh, in the equatorial Atlantic, looking for that, looking for those elusive uh, recorders, probably in 12,000 feet of water or something. Uh, that's got to be, you know, both tough duty, um, <clears throat> no pressure at all. Yeah, uh, right. And, yeah. and um, 
you know, no, um, uh, at this stage anyway, no, no knowledge of, of when uh, uh, they'll find it or if, even if they ever will find it and, and under what conditions. So it's, uh, it's got to be um, um, uh, heavy duty, uh, um, duty for them. And uh, I should say hardcore duty for them and uh, hats off to them. Yeah. Yeah. David, any other shout outs? Stick me with a fork. Okay. Hey, Jeb Burnside, you uh, are an aviation journalist uh, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. I know you knew that, but I have some others here didn't know that. And, oh, okay. I'm, I'm, thank you for sharing. Oh, there's others listening. <laughs> Where can people find you on the Internet? <laughs> AviationSafetyMagazine.com is my day job. Um my uh, personal website is jeburnside.com, and uh, I think we've pretty well flogged to death. Uh, people can find me on AvWeb every now and then. There you go. There you go. And Dave Higdon. He's even uh, a video star. That's right. That's right. And Dave Higdon uh, does, in fact, every need, now and then need to be reminded that he's an aviation photographer and also an aviation journalist and is the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com. Uh, that's my folks, at, my friends at World Aircraft Sales, uh, AEA.net, my friends over at Avionics News, uh, Aviation Safety, that wacko guy I work for over there, uh, DaveHigdon.biz, where I've got a few aviation pictures. Other than that, I'm just recluse. That's right. Yeah. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. We want to send out a big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our uh, episode show notes. Uh, that's Scoffrey Jet on the uh, forums. Say hi to him there. Also, thanks to our many listeners, and particularly to Royce Earl and Mike Morgan for creating the show opening disclaimer clips. You know, you mentioned it would have been perfect because you mentioned Walter Cronkite earlier in this episode, yeah. but it was in last week's episode that I used we have a Walter Cronkite disclaimer at the beginning um, and and by I, it would have been perfect to use this time but I used it last week so I don't know maybe I'll use it again and that's the way it is and that's the way it is that's right Wednesday June 24 2009 you <laughs> are really lousy <laughs> We're yeah, also that's one of the lousier impressions. We're ever. also yeah. very grateful. Don't don't work on that anymore. You got it down bad. <laughs> we're also very grateful for the financial support that we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the uncontrolled airspace homepage and the box in the right hand column labeled tip jar. And while you're there, don't forget that you can visit with all of us at the uncontrolled airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, check out the wiki, the airport restaurants list, the aviation movies list and more that's all at uncontrolledairspace.com hey david what were you going to say i probably have that dvd by the way <laughs> yeah. david uh, if you want to live long go fly because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan that's Bye-bye. right that's enough talking for this week let's go flying ttfn ttfn